Good morning. Our passage this morning is from John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. And this is the witness of John, when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed, and did not deny, and he confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. They said then to him, Who are you, so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing, if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. And I did not recognize him. But in order that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. And I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we get to gather here each week and hear from your word, and we thank you that today we get to hear about baptism, Lord, um, this Wonderful sign that you've left us, Lord, uh, this way for us to declare to the world our relationship with you, uh, this uh, wonderful uh, symbol, Lord, of our burial and resurrection, Lord, that we share uh, with you, Lord. We pray that you would bless the words that Tom is going to speak today, bless our hearts to be open to hear these things, Lord. I pray for uh, any here who know you, Lord, and have not uh, made this, this step to obey this command of the Lord, that you would impress upon their hearts the, the seriousness of this thing, Lord, and the beauty of it and the desirability of it, Lord. We thank you for your many good gifts, this among them. In your name we pray, amen. Good morning. Well, as I mentioned last week, we're going to do a brief series of three messages on the topic of baptism, and then... Leading up to Christmas, we're at this point, we're planning to do two messages on the incarnation of Christ. Uh, and then, as you guys know, Christmas and New Year's both fall on Sunday this year. So uh, we're going to have special services of extended worship on those two, those two Sundays. Um, this very brief series on baptism will consist of three parts, Lord willing. The first today is what baptism is. Uh, part two next week, what baptism does and then who should be baptized and when. Uh, 
there will surely be overlap in those three themes, so you can expect that I'll talk about some of those today and again later. And some of the questions, of course, that will be raised uh, during this message will be answered as we move along. But if there is something that you think of during the course of these three messages, especially the first two, that you want to make sure gets addressed, please feel free always to shoot me an email or a text or give me a call. Um, when you do a, a topic like this, a thematic uh, series, it's very easy to miss some things that are important to someone. <laughs> so I'm all ears if you have, have anything to suggest. I want to begin by talking about uh, God-ordained memorials uh, in the Old and New Testaments. This is a concept that a lot of people, for some reason, I, I think don't quite grasp, and it it's important for us to understand it. Um, when we understand why God gives His people ceremonies and remembrances in the first place, that understanding then goes a long way to help us avoid errors in regard to any individual ceremony, including baptism. The Old Testament is filled with memorials, physical, tangible, and often even hearable, tasteable, and smellable symbols that point to other things. Most of the memorials that we encounter in the Old Testament were commanded by God and ordained by God, including the rainbow, circumcision, the Passover, the tabernacle and all its furnishings, the sacrifices, the priestly garments, and the names given to many, many things and places and events. One of the great distinctives of the true religion, the one true religion, is that the real God of the universe has intervened in His creation countless times in countless and miraculous ways in real space and time. We don't, we don't observe a mere belief system. <laughs> we worship and serve the God who is and who has made Himself known in His creation and who has spoken over and over to mankind. He has not been silent. His people are called to remember and to ponder and to proclaim God's fearsome and powerful and gracious interventions in His creation. One of the many memorials that I, could, that I could use as sort of a template at this point in the Old Testament is found in Joshua chapter 4. God had just parted the waters of the Jordan River so that a couple of million Israelites could cross over into the land of promise on dry ground. This was the second time He parted waters. God instructed Joshua to send one man from each of the 12 tribes of Israel to take up a total of 12 large stones from the dried up middle of the Jordan River Basin and then to stack them in a prominent visible place on the west shore of the Jordan for everyone to behold. God's explanation to Joshua regarding the, the purpose of this visible and tangible uh, memorial reveals something very important to us about the, the essential purpose of all God-ordained memorials in both Testaments of the Bible. Listen to Joshua 
chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 as I read it. Let this be a sign to you. It's an important word. Let this be a sign to you so that when your children ask later, saying, what do these stones mean to you? You shall then say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of Yahweh when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, so these stones shall become a memorial. That's the other important word. A memorial to the sons of Israel forever. The key words there are sign and memorial. A sign points to something other than itself. We see signs all the time. A memorial reminds of something other than itself. The stones on the west shore of the Jordan River were ordained by God to serve as a sign, a memorial, a reminder to Israel of this magnificent event in their history. Uh, the word memorial or reminder does not imply that something has disappeared from the mind of the Israelites or of us. It's not about your memory not being able to retain something. It is a re-minder. It's about bringing something back to the forefront of your thinking. Getting your attention. Okay? It appeals to the physical senses of human beings in order to bring something to the front of their minds once again. Quite literally, to make them think about that thing every time they behold or practice the memorial. Now, nobody would say that the memorial points, the, the memorial that points to the event is equal to the event, right? You would not assume that every time an Israelite looked at the stones piled up on the west side of the Jordan that the river would dry up again, right? That would be pretty silly. Well, the fact that that would be pretty silly should get our attention because we do that with biblical memorials. The church has messed this up so many times in so many ways. The symbol is not the substance. The distinction between the symbol and the substance to which the symbol points is exceedingly important for us to, get, to keep in mind. As soon as the God-ordained symbol starts being treated as if it were the substance of that to which it points, things get really wonky and errors abound. We see this in the form of things like transubstantiation. The assumption that the symbol of the body and the blood of Christ becomes the body and the blood of Christ when we observe the ceremony. Or baptismal regeneration. The notion that, that it is the physical ceremony that is mandatory to save and that somehow is effect, effective to save. No, it's a symbol. And symbols have been the same in that essential character throughout the Bible. If we single one out and say it violates that pattern, we better have a really good reason for saying that. It better be crystal clear. But that's not the way this usually goes, right? If some Israelite in a later generation decided that those stones would be better put to use for building a wall in his garden, so he relocated them, he would be in trouble with God. 
For an Israelite to observe, to fail to observe the circumcision was punishable by death. Failure to observe the Sabbath was punishable by death. What that tells us is not that circumcision of the flesh is equal to circumcision of the heart. It tells us that the symbol is important to God because the thing to which it points is important to God. Stay with me. There are many memorials in the Old Testament. What about in the New Testament? Well, Jesus commanded only two physical, tangible observances or ceremonies that apply to every individual saint and to the gathered church under the new covenant. Those two ceremonies are the Lord's table and baptism. Now, some Christian denominations would say that marriage is a third God-ordained memorial or ordinance for the church, but marriage is not distinctively tied to the new covenant. It is a gift of God's common grace to all mankind, uh, and it also... Uh, does not apply to everyone, right? M marriage is not, not every human being even gets to marry. The two that do fit the description that they are, or they are ordained by God, they are connected to the new covenant, and they are for the whole church and all the saints in the church are baptism and the Lord's table. And the one that we're going to focus on in this little series is baptism. It is a, again, I'll say it, I'll say it yet again. It is a memorial in the very same sense that all other God-ordained memorials are. Okay? It is a symbol that points to something other than and greater than itself. The symbol does not accomplish the substance, but the symbol is both ordained and commanded by God in both cases the Lord's table, and baptism. And that makes the symbol indispensable. Now, it's funny that a lot of times in Christian circles, if you say that something's indispensable, people assume that that means it's necessary for salvation. It's kind of like saying, I don't, I'm not really serious about telling my kids they have to do something unless I kill them for not doing it. No, it's indispensable that they obey me, right? When, they're, when, when they were under my authority. Now, uh, I want to talk about for, uh, next, that was memorial, and that's a, big, that's a very important concept, this thing about memorial. Second, I want to talk about very briefly is baptism before the New Testament. Ceremoni ceremonial cleansing by water was an important part of the observances commanded of the Levitical priests for the, the service of the tabernacle under the law of Moses. It pictured God's requirement that those who draw near to him and that everything that, it, that is brought near to him is clean and pure. Um, that was not baptism, that ceremonial washing. That was not baptism. Now, certain sects of Judaism, especially during the intertestamental period, the 400, roughly 400 years between the two, two uh, testaments, did practice a kind of ceremonial baptism by immersion of the whole person in water. That version of baptism was most commonly used to initiate Gentiles, proselytes, into the Jewish faith. It pictured and proclaimed a change of belief and practice and a spiritual cleansing that had supposedly resulted from that change, cleansing in the eyes of God. 
But both the transformation and the cleansing were understood in those ceremonies to be the result of a new commitment by the person being baptized to keep the law of God. In other words, that baptism credited the person with the transformation. That's very, very different than the baptism that God commands of His church, as we'll see. Next thing in in the historical progression here is John's baptism. John the Baptist is the one we're talking about. You know, you guys know that John the Baptist doesn't mean he was a Southern Baptist, right? Okay, it means baptizer, right? <laughs> now I'm going to read from Luke chapter three, verses one through six, and then also verses fifteen to sixteen. Now in the 15th year, well actually let me start at 3, yeah, let me start at verse 3. He came into all the district, that's John the Baptist, came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. Every ravine shall be filled up, Every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough roads shall become smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And then verses 15 and 16 add this. Now while the people were in a state of expectation, and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he might be the Christ, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandal. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John said this many, he said this several times in John chapter 1 and in the other Gospels. I baptize with water, but the one who is coming baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now, according to that passage, for whom were the Jews waiting expectantly when John the Baptist came onto the scene? Messiah. How did they know about this Messiah? This Christ? Well, they knew about Him because the whole Old Testament talked about Him. The Bible is His story. Now, the Jews were waiting expect, expectantly for the Christ and thought maybe John was, was that guy. But do you know that John had been prophesied too? John the Baptist had been prophesied by Isaiah. John said, no, I'm not him. I'm not he. As for me, I baptize you with water. But the one who is coming is mightier than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Luke connects the ministry and the purpose of John the Baptist with the prophecy in Isaiah 40 that a man appointed by God was going to come to prepare the hearts of men for the coming of God's long-promised Messiah and Savior. The king in the line of David whose reign would be eternal. The suffering servant whose sacrifice would pay for the sins of sinners and redeem them to God before God. Luke identifies 
John, Luke's gospel, identifies John the Baptist as that herald, that prophesied herald who would come and announce the coming of Messiah. And Luke reminds us that according to Isaiah's prophecy, when the Messiah comes, all flesh will see the salvation of God. The first thing we need to understand about the baptism of John is, well, let me say it this way. There are two purposes that we need to to acknowledge about John's baptism. First, it called men to, to repentance for or with the goal of forgiveness of sins. But it didn't accomplish that forgiveness. The other, the second purpose of John's baptism was to herald, to point forward to the coming of the one who would accomplish that forgiveness. You with me? Okay, that's important. Because if you miss that, if, if you miss that, you haven't read those, those gospel passages about John the Baptist very carefully because it says it over and over. He came to point to someone, someone else who would actually accomplish salvation. Now, I'll get back to that in a second. This is, this is super important. Going back to what I said earlier, those, those precursors to baptism that were practiced by some Jews pictured a cleansing that it has, had supposedly happened because the Gentile repented and turned away from the worship of false gods and turned to personal commitment to obey the law of Moses. The cleansing that that baptism proclaimed was supposed to have been accomplished not as a gift of God given to undeserving men, but through a change of belief and behavior in the person being baptized that merited forgiveness. In other words, the repentant sender, sinner rendered himself clean in the eyes of God by covenanting to become a keeper of God's law given to Israel. That was most certainly not the same thing as the baptism of John. God commissioned John the Baptist to act as a herald of something yet to come. John's baptism was most certainly a proclamation of repentance for the one being baptized. For Jews, repentance from their arrogant reliance on their heritage, their traditions, and their law-keeping to make them right with God. For Gentiles, repentance from their equally arrogant reliance on man-made gods and man-sourced imitations of wisdom and truth. But for both Jews and Gentiles, John's baptism did not proclaim forgiveness accomplished. It pointed forward to the cleansing, the forgiveness that the one who was about to come would bring about. Am I being clear? Okay, this is super important. John's ministry was not to save sinners, whether they be Jews or Gentiles. John's mission was to make sinners ready for the one who would save them. For the salvation long promised by God through the prophets. For the Savior who would accomplish that salvation. When John began his God-appointed ministry, the world had 
The world was at the threshold of the fulfillment of a promise of salvation that had been proclaimed over and over in the Old Testament. The salvation that according to Isaiah 25 would overturn the curse of death. The veil that, that covered all the nations ever since the fall of man. The salvation by which, according to Isaiah 53, the suffering servant of God would bear upon Himself the penalty for the sins of God's rebellious and wayward people who had all turned to their own way. The Old Testament word to repent, that we translate, the word that we translate repent, simply means to turn. Means to turn. To turn away from one thing and to another thing. Throughout the Old Testament, the call to repent is above all else a call to turn to God from whatever is keeping you in some other place. It is a call to turn to God. Read the first chapter of Zechariah. You'll see that very, very clearly. At the heart of the repentance to which God was calling men through John was a turning away from whatever empty pursuit had taken the place of relationship with God and from whatever they were relying on to make themselves right with God. Turning their hearts to God in anticipation of a salvation that would be entirely of His doing, not of their doing, which made this radically different than the baptism that was being practiced by some Jews. John's baptism was to bring sinners to a place of expectation, of anticipation, of what? Well, of the salvation of sinners, of the forgiveness of sin and restoration to God that was promised in the Old Testament to both Jews and Gentiles. John knew very well that his baptism could not wash away anyone's sin. In John 1.29, when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, what did he say? He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What John was saying is, behold, look, this is the one. This is the long-promised Savior of sinners, the Son of God. This is the one who will take away your sin. I baptize with water. But this one baptizes in the Holy Spirit. John's baptism pointed to the true cleansing that only Jesus brings about. The next baptism in historical progression is John's baptism of Jesus. This is a very specific and unusual baptism. In Matthew 3, reading verses 13 to 17, Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And when he said us, I think Jesus was saying you and me, John. It's fitting. This is God's plan. 
to fulfill all righteousness. And then he permitted him, and after John permitted him and, and baptized him. And after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon Jesus. And behold, a voice came out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus had no need for a baptism of repentance. That didn't apply to Jesus because Jesus was sinless. The perfect man and perfect God. So why did Jesus need John to baptize him? Well, the only thing he tells us is that it was necessary to fulfill all righteousness. Beloved, Jesus is our forerunner in all respects when it comes to our relationship with the living God. He is the first of many brethren. When Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit came down upon him in a way that was a precursor to the Holy Spirit coming into and indwelling us. doesn't mean it's exactly the same thing. It means that, that what happened to Jesus was supposed to be a picture and to point us to what God was going to do with us. And next Sunday, when we look at the spiritual reality that our baptism pictures in more depth, especially from Romans chapter 6, we will have a clearer understanding of why Jesus submitted himself to this ceremony. All I'll say at this point is that I'm convinced that the physical baptism of Jesus pictured in advance the death and resurrection that he came to accomplish. Submerged under the water as a picture of death, raised up out of the water as a picture of resurrection. The resurrection that guarantees our resurrection. The death that paid for our sin. That's why I believe Jesus was baptized. Does that make sense? Okay. Now let's get to the, get to the heart of this believer's baptism. Symbol and substance. The Jewish precursors to John's baptism, as I said before, they purposed to celebrate a cleansing and a renewal of relationship with God accomplished. They were entirely about what men do for God, and because of that, that which they celebrated had no substance. It had not occurred. It was illusion and not reality that those baptisms proclaimed. John's baptism pointed to a cleansing that God had promised, a cleansing that very soon would indeed come. It called men to turn their hearts Godward and to wait expectantly for His long-promised salvation of sinners and for the Savior who would accomplish that salvation. Repentance is turning from and turning to the repentance to which John called all men did not accomplish any man's salvation. John was fully aware of that fact. Beloved, even if you were able to cleanse your own spiritual house, which you surely are not able to do, even that cleansing of all sin from your heart would not get the job done. Emptying a house of Demons and unclean things making it spick and span if it stops there 
It serves only to make the house more comfortable for the seven demons worse than the first who come back with the first demon and fill the house. The house has to be filled with righteousness. And the only righteousness that will do is the righteousness of Jesus. The thousands of baptisms that occurred in Acts chapter 2 at the first Christian Pentecost pictured that completed work in the life of every single person who trusted in Jesus on that magnificent day. 3,000 people in one day. The completed work of hearts made spotless and blameless in the eyes of God. Of sinners washed clean. Clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ forever. Through simple, childlike faith in the only one who can ever make anybody clean. Their baptism and our baptism commanded by Jesus for all who trust in Him, proclaims and celebrates that cleansing. Accomplished. Fully and forever. That's what believer's baptism does. That's what it declares. The work that we could never do has been done in full by Christ alone. Now, I want to look at these two, at two passages that address believer's baptism and as we do so, I want us to, to look hard for the uh, similarities and the differences between these two passages. One is Acts chapter 2, the other is Acts chapter 10. And when we compare these two chapters, we learn a lot <laughs> about, about what is really going on here. Uh, first Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 42. Now when they had heard Peter's proclamation of Christ as the crucified and resurrected Savior and King, it says they were pierced to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off as many as the Lord God shall call to Himself. And with many other words, Peter solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received His Word, those who had received His Word, were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. That multitude was comprised mostly of Jews who had come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. Acts chapter 10 is a different scenario. God had just in the previous chapter revealed to Peter, early in the chapter, revealed to Peter that Gentiles and Jews are all rendered clean by Christ and that there is no one who is unclean who is in Christ. And that was news to Peter. It was news to a lot of the Jewish, the, the first Jewish believers. And so then God sent this man Cornelius to Peter, or Peter to Cornelius, and he said, 
he, he wanted Peter to give the gospel to this man who was, whose heart God had prepared. But the man was a Gentile. And so Cornelius and his friends got to hear Peter deliver a gospel message again. And Peter said he was explaining what God had commissioned him to do in Acts chapter 10. And it says, And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. And then listen to this, very important. Of him, of Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Remember that. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message and all the circumcised believers, the Jews who had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon Gentiles also. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. He commanded them to be baptized. And then they asked him to stay on for a few days. A close comparison of these two passages is very, very helpful for understanding the purpose and the point of the ceremony of believers' baptism. First, let me talk very briefly about the mode of baptism. Uh, the English word baptize translates the Greek word baptizo, the root meaning of which is to dip or immerse. But the same word is used in Hebrews 9, verse 10 in reference to various kinds of ceremonial cleansings commanded under the law of Moses that did not necessarily involve full immersion of that which was being cleansed. The word baptism itself should not be treated as proof that a believer's baptism is only legitimate if it is done by full immersion. I know there are people here who will disagree with me about that. That's okay. But that's my understanding. It's pretty clear, however, that full immersion was the mode of baptism most commonly used by the church, by the early church, both in the case of John's baptism and the believer's baptisms that we're looking at here in the book of Acts. That's why John had to find a river to baptize people in, because it was a baptism of immersion. We at Community Bible Chapel do not believe that we should make the mode of baptism a point of contention or division with brothers and sisters from denominations that practice sprinkling instead of dunking. We believe we should not be legalistic about the symbols employed as God-ordained memorials. There can be no doubt, friends, that the mode of our practice of the Lord's table does not look exactly like the Lord's table that was practiced in the Gospels. I'm pretty sure they didn't have little plastic cups for the wine. I'm fairly sure that they ate larger pieces of bread, but that's just me. It is, after all, the symbol and not the substance that is in focus. 
we what we absolutely must not miss in the comparison of Acts 2 and, and Acts 10 is this. The ceremony does not accomplish the forgiveness of sins. If it did, baptism would have been a prerequisite for the receiving of the Holy Spirit in both passages because the Holy Spirit comes and indwells the one who has been put in Christ. I'll come back to that in a second. In Acts chapter 10, baptism happens after the Holy Spirit has been poured out on Gentiles who have believed in Jesus. Now let's look further at what is the same and what is different when we compare these two passages. Acts 2.38 says, Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the Holy Spirit. In Acts 10, it says, Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Now, in the first occurrence, Acts 2, who was baptized that day? Well, those who were pierced through the heart through Peter's proclamation about Christ and who received Peter's word concerning Jesus. John 1.12 explicitly equates receiving Christ with believing in Christ. And I believe that's exactly what's going on here when it says they received Peter's word. I believe it means they believed his gospel. Acts chapter 10, it says, through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who were listening to the message. And then he says, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Spirit just like we did, we Jews. And he ordered them to be baptized. And so who was baptized in Acts chapter 10? Those who heard the gospel and believed in Jesus who had thus received forgiveness of sins. They were baptized. The same people who had already received the Holy Spirit, just as Peter and the other Jews, Jewish believers had. The common elements in the two passages are these. Those who were baptized were those who had received the preaching of the gospel and believed that preaching. And those who believed in Jesus also received the gift of the Holy Spirit. But the timing wasn't the same. What's different in the two passages is that the gift of the Holy Spirit, which Peter and his friends clearly interpreted as the attestation of spiritual transformation and identification with Christ and with His people, came after the ceremony of baptism in Acts 2, but before the ceremony of baptism in Acts 10. Now, I may have lost some of you, but that's, the, that's one of the key things I want you to see. Okay, The giving of the Holy Spirit came after baptism in Acts 2 and before baptism in Acts 10. And it was the sealing of... It was the, the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that Peter declared to be demonstration and proof that the Gentiles are now in the body. That they're with us. They're part of us. Okay? It was not the ceremony that accomplished the conversion and forgiveness of sinners. It was God's grace producing faith in Christ in those sinners that accomplished their conversion and their forgiveness. And this is entirely in keeping, by the way, with what Paul says about 
the sealing of the Holy, the seal of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 1. It says, in Christ, you also, not just us Jews, but you Gentiles, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a down payment of your inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. That passage says you heard and you believed and God sealed you by putting His Spirit inside of you as the down payment of your eternal inheritance. He laid claim to you through the, through the Spirit, by the Spirit, okay? A few critically important conclusions here, and I am very close to wrapping up. Forgiveness proceeds from repentance and belief, not from the physical ceremony of baptism. The gift of the Holy Spirit is given to those who repent, trusting in Jesus. Those two phrases should be very close together. Who repent, comma, trusting in Jesus. And that brings us to the third point, and this is the one I pray you will all walk away with as clearly as possible. Repentance and belief are not treated as distinct processes or as two separate steps towards salvation. They are treated as if one implies the other. Acts 2 says those who repent receive forgiveness of sins. Acts 10 says those who believe in Jesus receive forgiveness of sins. And Acts 10 makes no explicit mention of repentance. It's not part of the gospel in Acts 10. And it's not part of the gospel in Acts 2. Many other passages promise forgiveness and eternal life to those who believe without any reference to repentance. The one that, that we all know that used to be on the banner at the end of the footballs, uh, end zone of the football games, John 3.16. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but should, but should have eternal life. Okay. So what is repentance? What is repentance? Repentance is to turn from and to. Repentance is turning. This is uh, a professor of mine when I was in seminary, and I'll never forget this. Repentance it means turning from whatever is keeping you from trusting in Jesus to trusting in Jesus. For the Jews, that which they had to turn from in order to turn to Jesus was their trust, their reliance upon their own obedience to the law of Moses as the basis of their righteous standing in the eyes of God. For some Gentiles, that which they had to turn from in order to turn to Jesus was their trust in God's made by human hands to provide well-being to them now and in eternity. Other Gentiles had to turn from their trust in the wisdom of man, like the, the gang gathered at Athens in Acts 17. The reasoning of man was their God in order to turn to the revelation of God concerning His Son. Some Gentiles had to turn from their reliance on stoic self-abasement, buffeting the body for the wrong reasons in order to gain favor with God, in order to make themselves good. 
as if that stoicism could earn them a right standing in the eyes of a perfectly holy God. Like the Jews, those Gentiles had to turn to Jesus Christ and trust only in His perfect work of salvation that they had nothing to do with and nothing ever to contribute. It is not our work that saves us from the terrible penalty of our sin. It is only the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what believe, friends, whatever it takes for God to break you of reliance on anything else to bring you to that simple childlike faith in Jesus Christ and in Him alone, that's the work of repentance and that too is a work of God. It is a gift. Next time we're going to take a closer look at the miraculous transformation that the ceremony of baptism pictures and proclaims and celebrates. And I would, I would uh, suggest to you that if you have time, read Romans 6 and really dig into it. The whole chapter. That will be the, the, the essential text for next week. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank You for both the reminder and the reality of baptism that You have given to us as Your redeemed people. Father, we thank You for the substance of that which our baptism, uh, to which our baptism points, because that substance is Jesus. It's all Him. As was said at the worship this morning, it's all Him and only Him. And so we give all the credit for our right standing in Your eyes to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we say thank You, Father, for sending Him to save us. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.